So if you were here last week, um, we looked at the first seven verses in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, and God was so gracious with us, he, he gave us on a day that, that the world stopped to recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he gave us a chance to look at this eternal glory, um, this this movement of God where God glorifies the Son, God the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, and, and we, through the great plan of redemption, get to participate in that receiving and giving of glory. Um, it, it's an extraordinary thought and, and worth dwelling on and preaching and teaching on for our whole lives. We will spend all of eternity uh, magnifying and reflecting the glory of God. And what God does here is He... For those of you who are here, if you remember, there was a contingency that, that came from Bethel, which is 12 miles north of Jerusalem, down to Jerusalem to talk to the priests and the prophets. And they had a question. They, they had a particular fast they were engaging in on the 18th day of their fifth month, and they wanted to know if they should continue with this fast. And the reason they were asking that the fast was in commemoration of the burning and destruction of the temple, the first temple. And the second temple is halfway through its four-year building process. It's two years away from completion. So they come to the priests, and they come to the prophets, and they say, should we continue doing this? I mean, is there, is there reason for us continuing this fast? And they're expecting a simple yes or no from God. God saying, yes, continue. No, don't continue. And they want it to be on their way. And God does not answer them. And you know last week what he says. He says, listen, I have a question for you. Kind of like Jesus did this all the time. I'll, I'll ask you a question. If you answer it, then I'll, I'll answer yours. And God said, why are you fasting? Why are you doing any of this? And I'm so thankful because by God's grace last week, it called into question everything that we do in the form of formal worship, non-formal worship, everything that you do, that we, all our, our engagements, the means of grace, are gathering on a Sunday morning, are, are praying, are singing to God, lifting our voices up. When you open your Bible at home and you're studying and, and when you pray, God says to you, why are you doing that? Because if it's real worship, it's what? It's about Him. It's for Him. And if it's not for Him and about Him and to Him, then we can say categorically, without apology, it's not biblical worship. You're worshiping someone else, something else, but it's not God. And so God last week called us to this laser focus on why we do what we do. And, and, and that's sufficient to go, okay, reflect upon all that we do. But he doesn't leave us there. He's such a gracious and good father. He says, not only do I want you to examine the why, but now we're going to look at the how. We're going to look at what you do. And he gives us here in this passage four aspects of right worship. It's not total. It's certainly not comprehensive. But we're going we're to try to hone in on these four and then look at their response to it. In this passage, he gives us four, assuming that we are worshiping him to bring him glory. He gives us four forms or four aspects of this right worship. And the product of that in the heart of the faithful. And then, the rest of the passage as you were listening, it's a, another covenant warning. He's saying, this is, how I have, this is why you should be worshiping. This is how you're supposed to worship. And now I need to warn you. What happens if you don't? Okay, so this morning, by God's grace, let's look at right worship of the living God, man's response to right worship, the consequences of our response, and then God's rescue mission through Christ. Right worship, what it looks like, 
how we respond to that, our sin nature, the consequence of our response to that, and then God's rescue mission through Christ. Number one, right worship the living God. We start off right here in verse 8. It says, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And so it's immediately, most of the commentators agreed, there wasn't a, a period of time immediately going from the why to the how. He spoke last week, as we saw, to Zechariah, telling the people, this is why you ought to worship. This is why you ought to fast. This is why you should go to church. It's to bring me honor and glory. And now he's saying, and this is how you do it. Look at verses 9 and 10. Thus said the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Four characteristics of worship, aspects of worship that produce character transformation in the hearts and minds of the believer that are for all people in all places, at all the church throughout the world. He said, this is how you are to live if you're worshiping me rightly. And I want to look at all four briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time because I want to look at the consequences. Most of you know how this plays out, but we'll look at this, these, these laws and try to discern from them what God is actually saying. Number one, he says, right worship will render true judgments toward one another. In other words, God is saying, in my kingdom, I'm your God, I'm a just God. And in my kingdom, my children, my sons and daughters will treat each other justly, fairly. Not predisposed to, to uh, being prejudiced or biased, but you will approach a situation seeking truth, desiring to know truth, and live in accordance with it amongst the family of God. It literally says in the Hebrew, trustworthy verdicts or faithful judgments will be rendered. In other words, you won't come into a situation which requires your adjudication and be biased. That's hard, especially when it's about your brother or your parents or your child, or your grandchild, or your best friend, right? God's saying, in my economy, in my family, we don't do that. We're not going to render a false judgment because I'm best friends with someone. Or you're talking about my son or my wife, and then I'm going to vacate true justice. Leviticus 19, going all the way back to Moses' writings. God said through Moses, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor, or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Treat others fairly. And you say, well, what does that look like? We know exactly what that looks like, because when we're not treated fairly, we're the first one to cry foul, right? I don't, I don't have to go into great detail. You know what that's like when you're not treated fairly. We don't even have to teach us as parents. How, when your children are young, and if you have, they have siblings... And the sibling does something to them, they go, that's not fair. And you just say, hey, listen, this is how the judicial process works in our family. When your brother does this to you, you cry foul and tell me it's not fair. They know, we know. And so God is saying clearly to us, as a covenant people, reflect my character as just people. Not only because it is the means by which we are called and commanded to live in covenant community, but it will reflect the glory of God to the world because the world does not treat people justly, right? We know that. Even in the context of this passage, we we know that those who are on the margin, single mothers, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, the foreigners, are not treated justly. People we don't like are not treated justly. People that we envy are not treated justly. And God's saying, don't have that in my family. That doesn't belong in my church. So he says, number one, right worship, the form of it. 
will be to render true justice. Number two, he said, he said that his people will show kindness and mercy to one another. Now, I don't know, some other translations will be more literal than that. It, it says in the Hebrew, show kindness and mercy a man to his brother. So, once again, this is in the context of biblical community. This is in the context. Now, it's not, it doesn't mean, therefore, that you are not supposed to be merciful and kind to people outside the covenant community. But he's talking about right worship, right? Those who he's gathered and he's called by name. He said, you must live in community, in kindness and mercy to your brother and to your sister in Christ. And the word that he uses for, for kindness here, it's translated mercy in the first word in other translate, it's kased, and it's a very well-known Hebrew term, and it literally means merciful kindness. So not just being kind when you have an opportunity, but it's being kind when you have the opportunity to exercise justice. Does that make sense? So when we extend mercy instead of justice in certain situations, and we do that in kindness, this is the kased that he's talking about. That means when you have every right to exercise justice, and you exercise kindness and mercy instead. That's what he's describing. For those of you who grew up with siblings, we know what those rules look like. I grew up, I was one of four boys. I was number two, my oldest brother, Kirk, whom I loved dearly. He and I were only two years apart, so we tracked each other through life. We went to school together and all those things. And in my unregenerate, very mean, foolish boy life, when I, when I would get up in the morning, I had a particular purpose, and that was to agitate him. Hmm. Yes, you can go, ugh. That's disgusting. It is. I hate it. And so in the morning, my brother was very quiet. And in the morning, so I'd come into his presence, and, and I would hum a song that I knew he didn't like. <laughs> and then I would do other things. I would chew my cereal really loud, and he would hate it. Or I would just, my mom could testify, I would just make noises. Just noises. So annoying. Now, in the brotherly economy, that's worthy of death. Those are all death sentences, right? We know that. Minimally, it's I'm going to pin you on the ground and I'm going to twist your arm until you stop. In the brotherly economy. And my brother, by God's grace, who was still unsaved, showed me mercy and kindness. I mean, he never pummeled me. I mean, absolutely should have come across the table and leveled me out. I'm the little brother. And he never did. Never did. He would just turn aside. He would just turn aside like, okay, you're not here. I don't hear you. Every right to exercise justice, and instead in those situations, he exercised mercy, kindness. This is what we're supposed to do in the body of God. This merciful kindness is modeled after God's kased, God's merciful kindness to us who are deserving of what? We deserve hell. We deserve justice and wrath and punishment. And what does he give us instead? His son, and mercy and grace. So this is modeled after him and to be present in his family. So one, we're to exercise true justice. Two, to be kind and merciful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, he says, if you worship me properly, that form will look like this. It will not oppress the weak, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Now, these were all categories in the time of Zechariah and the New Testament as well of people who, were, who lived on the margin, who didn't have advocates, who didn't have a politician or a lawyer or going pro bono to support them and fight for them. They were powerless and they had no one to argue on their behalf, no one to intercede. The widow obviously no longer under her husband's covering or, or livelihood. The orphan... 
No parents. The sojourner in a country without the rights of being a citizen of that country. And the poor, the poor in this time, they were considered cursed. Cursed by God, that God has not blessed them, and therefore they were treated as economic and social outcasts. And God says, do not oppress them. Do not take advantage of their situation for your benefit. Don't cheat them out of things that they deserve or they they are entitled to. Don't deceive them. And don't just ignore them and cast them aside because they're not like you. Now this warning of God goes all the way back to the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Exodus 22 when God was establishing his theocracy and the law for Israel. He's saying, you better listen. This is God the creator. He says, listen, these people I have a special protection and care and concern for. In fact, he says in Exodus 22, listen closely. He says, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you. Did you hear that? That's God. That's clear. I will, he says, I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. How important do you think those who live on the margin are to our living God? How important is it that we not only not oppress them in our midst, but care for them to meet their needs? So God's people are just, kind, and merciful. They care for rather than oppress the weak and the vulnerable. And the the fourth one he gives us, he says, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And again, another is rendered most literally brother. Let none of you devise evil against a brother in your heart. Better. I like that better. Um, Now, the language is severe. It's not just having ill thoughts. The language is, um, it's more than a bad opinion. Uh, it, It is to plot evil. It literally is malicious scheming. Now, we might exempt ourselves out of this go, oh, okay, well, I, I don't do that. I, I may think ill of people at times, but I don't engage in malicious scheming. I'm not trying to, to find people and, and exercise a movement against them to hurt them. But before we exempt ourselves out of this, whenever you or I engage in dialogue with another brother or sister about another brother and sister, and our intent in that dialogue is to gossip or slander or put them down. You are engaged in malicious scheming. You say, no, 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 it just happened. I didn't mean that. Where does that come from? Where do those words come from? From the heart. The scheming, the deceit from the heart. And so before we render ourselves absent this particular type of worship, we must know that these evil statements, the gossip, the slander the tearing one down to lift yourself up, it starts in the heart. These are evil thoughts devised in the heart. And that's why the prophet Micah said, woe to those who plan iniquity and to those who plot evil on their beds. Woe to us when we do that. So God comes along after the why and he gives the how. Four characteristics, very straightforward, not difficult to understand. True justice, kindness and mercy, a watch care over the vulnerable, and a pure heart towards our brothers and sisters. 
Now, what's imperative for us to see is he's not just giving these commands saying, here's the law, here's how it looks, now just go do it. Just do it. Figure it out on your own strength and your own power. These are all products of our right worship of him initially. The why has to be first. In other words, there's an expectation here that we will live as a covenant community in this fashion. That we will exercise true justice, that we'll be kind and merciful with one another. That there, there won't be a desire to scheme against one another in our lives. Um, that, that we'll have a pure heart towards um, our brothers and sisters and we'll treat the vulnerable well, not just not oppress them. But he's saying, this is a product of your worship of me first. And what we do is, unfortunately, we try to, we take these, we go, okay, and we take copious notes and we go, I'm going to be more just. I'm going to be more merciful. I'm going to be more kind. And God's not putting it in that context. In the context of this passage, he's saying, if you worship me rightly with the right why, right, to bring me honor and glory, then the product of this will be your loving one another as I've commanded you to live. There'll be, there'll be a transformation of character. Do you remember last week I read to you from Isaiah 58? And I read to you, I'll just give you a piece of this. God said to Isaiah, On the day of your fasting, you did as you pleased and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other. In other words, he was saying, You fast, but it's not for me. And therefore, what's the product? What's the product of worship that's not directed for me and about me and to me? He said the product is injustice, exploitation, quarreling and strife. It's hatred. Is it any wonder that we see churches tearing each other apart? You say, what is going on? Why are these churches at each other's throat? Why are they arguing and fighting? Why are they hating each other? Well, God would say, go back and say, well, what is their worship like? How are they worshiping me? Is it about me at all? Is the preaching about me? Is the teaching about me? Are the songs about me? Is the prayer to me? Because if it's not, if it's two man and four man, then we will devour each other. But when the why is right, when we worship God for him, when our worship is to him and about him, to bring him honor and glory, then everything else is realigned. And we hear these imperatives given to us here by Zechariah. And it's not, okay, I'm going to go try really hard to do this. It's, I'll worship God correctly. And in so doing, this is how we will live. With justice, with mercy, with kindness, with care for the vulnerable without wickedness and bitterness growing in our heart. This will be the result. Now, I love this. In other words, if we worship God correctly for the right reasons, it will enable us to fulfill the second greatest commandment, right? Which is to love one another as ourselves, to love one another as God has called us to love, to love one another as He loves us. So the why... If we worship God correctly, the why, the purpose, it will be loving him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You say, that's good. I need that. And if we worship him correctly, loving him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it will produce in us, it will change us into people who will love one another as he's just commanded here. In other words, right worship produces not only a love for God, but a love for one another. In other words, it fulfills both the first and second greatest commandments. And you say, what's the big deal about that? 
Jesus said in Matthew twenty two forty, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. That's worth a fantastic hallelujah, amen. You've got to be kidding me. Yes. Uh, no, I'm not kidding you. Yes, it's fantastic. If we worship God rightly with the right desire, it will cultivate a heart in us to love him with all of who we are. And that will spill over into our love for one another. And we will live out. We will do the first and second greatest commandments. Holy as he is holy. Becoming the people that he created us to be. So that our contingency from Bethel, they come and they want a yes or a no. One or the other. And God says, I'm going to blow it all out of the water. Forget about the yes and the no. I'm going to tell you about holiness. And I'm going to call you to a right worship of me, which will lead to a right treatment of one another. And so he does just that. And he is such a gracious father. He doesn't leave them there. Because they'd hear it and they'd go, this sounds familiar. My father told me about this and my grandfather told me about this. He doesn't leave him because he knows how we are. We'll take that and go, just as we might hear today, yes, yes, of course, yes, we agree, yes. And, and so we, should we do the fast or not? Yes, yes, we should worship you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we should love one another as ourselves. Yes, yes, shall we do the fast or not? And they're not hearing it. And he knows they're not hearing it. So what does he do? He's going to draw upon their history. And he's going to draw upon their immediate life experience to take this teaching and slam it into their heart so they get it. And by God's grace, it'll be slammed into your heart as well. And you'll hear it. Maybe for some the first time today. Point number two, man's response to God's form of worship. What does it look like? God's told us what it looks like. How do we respond to it? So God immediately, now this context is here. He begins talking about their forefathers. He's talking to Zechariah and, Je- and the priests of that time, all the people in that time. And he, be- he now goes back and says, let's talk about your forefathers. Let's look at how they received this same teaching through the prophets and the law. Verses 11 and 12, Zechariah 7. Ready? Of their forefathers, God says, but they refused to pay attention. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. These commands, the law and the prophets, these teachings about why and how of right worship, that's not new. None of it's new. He's saying, your fathers heard this very thing, how you are to live with me in a covenant relationship, me being your God and you being my people. He says, I've taught this again and again and again. You haven't in the law. The prophets had said it. You've heard this. So this is nothing new. And he says, look how your fathers and your forefathers heard. They didn't just hear and forget. They didn't just hear and dismiss it a bit. Please notice, they heard, they understood, and they adamantly refused to submit. They heard it, they understood it, they got it, and they said, we're not going to do it. And they're, they're talking to the creator of the universe. We heard you, God. No. That's not a good response in my house with my children to me as their father, and I'm an earthly father. No is a bad response. There are immediate consequences and they're never good. And they say to God, no. 
he gives us two physical illustrations to make his point, and they are extraordinary. He says, in response to my law and the word from the prophets, they, your forefathers, they turned a stubborn shoulder. Now, we hear that. What is that? What is that? I need a massage. I mean, what is that stubborn shoulder? Please work this knot out. What is that? It's an agrarian phrase. It pertains to an animal. It pertains to putting a yoke on the animal. The yoke, a better word for us today would be a harness to use them to work, right? So the animal would turn the shoulder so the yoke wouldn't go on. So what? So they wouldn't have to do the work. So they wouldn't have a master telling them what to do. My, my boys are, have been blessed recently to, they're part of a homeschool program and they have had a chance to do horseback riding lessons. And they've been doing this for several weeks now. And they don't just learn how to ride. They learn how to take care of the horse in total, right? Everything. The cleaning of the hooves, the, the putting the saddle on, the grooming, and all that. Well, and also learning how to put on the harness and the bit. And there's a particular horse there, and his name is Scooter. And Scooter, he hates the harness, and he hates the bit. And so when they go to put the harness on him... He, does this with his head, he, a stubborn head instead of a stubborn shoulder, okay? When they go to put the bit in his mouth, I love it. These animals are brilliant. It's like this. He clenches his teeth, and they have to tinker and pull back, and he will bite his teeth down. And usually, an instructor has to come over to get the bit in. Why? He's saying, no, 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 no. He's being stubborn, okay? Zechariah, God is saying through Zechariah, your forefathers did the same to me. They grit their teeth, they turn their head, they turn their shoulders, and they wouldn't listen to me. He gives another example. He says, they stopped their ears that they might not hear. Now, you don't have to be raised on a farm to get this one. Now, you all have the image of the two-year-old putting their fingers in their ears as the parents are talking, going, la, 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 I'm not hearing you. You say, well, I don't, I don't do that. No, when we get older, we're much more nuanced in the stopping of our ears, right? We're culturally appropriate in how we stop our ears. How do we stop our ears? Oftentimes, we just walk away. I'm done with this dialogue, and we walk away. We shut a door. We go offline, you know, the green to the yellow, or the green to the, what is it, red. We hang up the phone, because that's easy. Or we just feign ignorance. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Stopping our ears, not wanting to hear. God said in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the Lord sent word to his people through his messengers, listen, again and again, because he had pity on them and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem. Verse 16, 2 Chronicles 36, but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Conscious, willful rebellion. God speaks again and again. He brings the law. He brings the prophets. They kill the prophets. They don't even just listen to them. They kill them. We don't like what you're saying so much. We're going to kill you. Producing in the lives of God's people what? What's the product of this rebellion? What's the product of the stubborn shoulder and the stopped ears? What is it? Look at verse 12. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So by not submitting and following the law, turning a stubborn shoulder, and by, not, and by refusing to hear the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets, stopping up their ears, they too were changed. Did you see that? 
Initially, we talked about being changed through our worship of God. We worship God rightly, then we're changed in how we live. These people are changed too, but not for the better. And I, I love that the translation is so literal and it's great. It says, they made their hearts diamond hard. They did the work. They did the work of darkness. They did the work of, of taking that, that, that heart. In, in the Hebrew, the word is shamir. And it's, it's, a, it's a gemstone or a rock that's unpenetrable. You can't break it. And, and, and he's saying, you've done this to yourself. You've made your heart like this. How is that? That's a heart that's so hard that I, I can't hear any longer. It's a heart that's so hard that I can't submit any longer. Where I, I have rendered myself unable to hear God and follow God and submit to God. An unpenetrable heart. And God's saying, just like your forefathers did at Meribah in the desert. Remember? Just like your forefathers. What was their, what was the consequence of their hardening? The psalmist told us, I read it to you earlier, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have known, not known my ways, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And that entire generation for 40 years wandered the desert and they never entered the rest of God. They never made it into the promised land. Why? Because they made their hearts hard. You say, well, wasn't it God's choice? Didn't he make them? No, they made their hearts hard and suffer the due consequence of their own sin. Saints, when we rebel against the word of God, when we rebel against the prophecies, when we go to scripture and we turn a stubborn shoulder or we plug our ears, we make our hearts hard. We we change ourselves. And it's so foolish. It's foolish for a myriad of reasons. It's foolish because if you go against God and he's the creator of the universe... Then as, as one author put it, and I love it, he said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. Lots of splinters. So you're, there are going to be immediate consequences in your life for working against God and how he created things. Immediate consequences. It'll break your relationship with the living God. We know that scripturally. We looked last week, it will deny him glory that he rightly deserves. Those are all terrible. The worst being the lack of glory that he rightly deserves. But what I want you to see from this passage is that you will not stay the same. You will change. You you harden your heart. You stop up your ears. You turn your shoulder, a, a stubborn shoulder from the word of God, his law, his prophecies. You do that and you'll change. And I'll add to it. You'll change radically and exponentially. You'll become darker and darker and darker. Just like our right worship of God will transform us into a people who will love each other properly, turning from God, His law, His prophecies, His power will turn us into a people who destroy each other as a church, as a community, and certainly if you watch or listen to the news, the world itself. I had a former student years ago when I first uh, started teaching, shared the gospel with him. He heard, he repented, he believed. I started teaching. He came to church. He was baptized. 
He, in accordance with scripture, he became a member of the body of Christ. In accordance with scripture, he started using his gifts and talents in the context of the local church. In accordance with scripture. And it was one of those, he was one of the first young men of all my students that I, that I shared the gospel with that actually said, I believe. And it was one of those, and to watch him move so quickly. And I, and I was younger in my head, I thought, this is extraordinary. God's doing extraordinary work in this young man's life. And just praise and adoration. And then he went away to a Christian college. And he got a girlfriend. And he started fornicating. And he stopped going to church. And he stopped reading his Bible. And he forsook God altogether. What happened? And what happened? He went from hearing to going, I'm not going to listen. He went from knowing the law saying, I'm not going to obey. He went from hearing God's word to rejecting God's word. And the last I heard, he has completely forsaken the faith and he's now living on the East Coast. Tragic. Tragic. Real transformation of character in the wrong way. You say, all right. So my right worship of God leads to right transformation of me that enables me to love people in the body properly. Yes, And my wrong worship of God, stopping my ears, turning my shoulder, becoming stiff-necked, not hearing his law, not hearing his prophecy, that changes, that, that, that hardens my heart and leads to sin and death and destruction. Yes. Yes. You say, well, how bad could it be? I mean, what, what are the consequences of this latter end that you talked about? Point number three. The consequences of a rebellious heart. Now, before I get to verses 12 and 13 and 14, we must understand that we live in a culture that hates discipline. So when you hear, when you heard Todd read that initially and when you hear me preaching on it, you must understand that we are in a time and a place where discipline, right discipline, not anger exercise, but right discipline is not done or even accepted culturally, right? I mean, so much so that if you spank your child in public now, you might get a knock at your door from Child Protective Service saying, you were witnessed. So discipline now is timeouts, right? And that means no dessert for you after dinner, young boy. Discipline in in the family, essentially eradicated. Discipline in the work environment, Right. How many of you have gone through uh, tolerance training or, or um, diversity training? Right? You, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How'd you like that? Right? We're not going to do discipline, right? We're going to have a, a judgment-free, discipline-free workplace, and we're, we're all going to just hold hands and get along. In politics and business, we only see discipline come into place when it's, the, when it's the most extreme nature. And then even then, we don't like it because we... we we think it's unfair, and deep down we know that our conscience is guilty before a holy God too, and we say, maybe that's going to come at me next. And even in the church, probably the most grievous testimony of this, that even in the church, where discipline is not only commanded by God, but expected to be part of our daily lives, the body, we don't engage in church discipline. I'm talking formal and corrective, or I should say formative and corrective, at its base level, where we hold each other accountable on a daily basis, and at its end level, where we actually move as a church to put somebody in our church discipline for, for unrepentant sin. 
And we don't do it because we think that it's unloving. We think that somehow it's not loving to engage in discipline with one another. So God's response, if that is your understanding of discipline, here in verses 12 to 13 and 14, might seem extreme. Listen to what he says in response to their hardening their own hearts. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts, verse 12. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. God was angry, and rightfully so. These people that he poured out his blessings on, these people that he handpicked through their father Abraham and had given the law and given the prophets and given the land, I mean, he blessed them in, in, in such a manner that they should have for their whole lives been grateful. And instead, what did they do? They stopped their ears, they turned their shoulders, and they rebelled against him. Was he angry? He was angry. Better translation, great wrath. Literally bursting out in rage. The sin that they were engaging in was destroying themselves. It was destroying their community. It was destroying their nation. It was destroying their testimony. It was destroying, it was bringing the honor and glory to God that he rightly deserved. It was, it was destroying everything. And, and God was angry. And he should have been angry. Really angry. Because they continued in their rebellion. Their stubborn shoulders, their stopped ears, and their hardened hearts. Even after saints, they were warned again and again and again and again. How many prophets came and said, stop what you're doing? How many prophets said, you're sinning against the living God? How many prophets said, if you continue down this path, wrath will come? And they did it anyway. And what happened? In 721, God sent the Assyrians and Israel fell. And in 586, God sent the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and Jerusalem and Judah fell. And as they're all going to exile, they're going, what happened? How'd this happen? Imagine God saying, you've got to be kidding me. Because disaster, when it came, look at verse 13. They cried out. God said, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear them. When the Assyrians fell upon Israel in 721, they cried out to God and he stopped his ears. When the Babylonians fell upon Jerusalem in 586, they cried out to the Lord, Lord, Jehovah God, save us. And he turned his shoulder. He would not hear their cries because they would not listen to him. Now, many of us, certainly many in the contemporary American church will hear this and say, that's not fair. They will say, that's not loving. That's not the God that I believe in. The God that I believe in loves me unconditionally, without exception, if I stop my ears or not, if I harden my heart or not. He loves me no matter what. I can do whatever I want. That's the God I believe in. And that's fine, but there's a problem. That God's not real. That's not a real God. The God you may believe in may actually practice that. He's a demon, by the way. You can call him whatever you want. That's demonic. The God of the Bible says, I love you. And there are very real conditions to this covenant in which we've engaged in. The God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, has very real 
conditional covenant expectations for his children to live in a particular way. From our perspective, sinful man seeing the work of God on the cross through Jesus Christ. I get God's pouring out his love on us unconditionally. From our perspective, we see that and we go, it's unconditional love. And in some ways it is. Some ways it's not. No, don't get sideways on me, please. Please, just be patient. This is hard teaching. These are deep watch. So be patient with me. I'll be patient too. I'll try. <laughs> From his perspective, God has a very real and radical expectation that the love he pours out on you will have a conditioned response. What is that? True justice, kindness and mercy, treating the most vulnerable in our midst with love and not, bear, not, not growing wickedness in our own heart, that we are actually going to be changed. His love on us will change us and transform us into the very people that he's called and created us to be. How do I know that? Well, that's what the Bible teaches, but even common sense says, if God only loves us unconditionally, I mean, no condition of any kind, then why do we have the law? Why do prophets? I mean, wouldn't he just say, I've saved you by blood of my son, and do whatever you want. It's your party. I mean, seriously, whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. Go there, yeah, destroy that, yeah, kill, sure, no problem. Why wouldn't he? If it were unconditional, then he will save you and... Let you run around. He wouldn't call you to obedience. He wouldn't call you to submission. He wouldn't give you the how to worship because he wouldn't care, right? He'd say, worship any way you want. But he cares deeply. We believe the Bible teaches what's called unconditional election, which attributes to this unconditional love. And that means that God, he chooses you and puts his love on you. Without you doing anything. That the Bible teaches very clearly. I'll even give you a verse. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Ready? That God elects you. He chooses you. He saves you without condition. Listen. He said, for he chose us in him when? Before the creation of the world. I'm pretty sure that before the creation of the world, you didn't do anything. I'm pretty sure. Before anything was created, we didn't do anything. Can we all agree upon that? Okay, good. Because we didn't exist yet. Right? So before you were ever born... God had unconditionally, independent of anything that you would do, say, think, or believe, elected you, chose you, and put his love on you. In that sense, it is unconditional. I'll agree 100% and say, amen, praise God. He put his love on you. He didn't do anything. Okay? No work, no choice, no will, no program, no pill, no procedure, no church. He does the work of regeneration, breathing new life into our dead souls, making us one of his own. Grafting us into the vine, adopting us as sons and daughters. But why does he do that? Why does he sovereignly choose to place his love on us? Why? So we can continue in rebellion? So we can continue sinning? So we can continue to say, nah, thanks for the love. Not going to do the law. Take the love, forget about the prophets. No. I'll finish Ephesians 1.4. Paul said, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in His sight. I told you you were going to hear it again. 
To be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words, God elects us, he saves us, he loves us, and he empowers us with a most radical condition. That you're going to become holy and blameless. There is a condition there. I'm going to love you, and that love will make you holy and blameless in my sight. Why? Last week, to bring him honor and glory. And we can even be more specific. God the Father, through the work of the Son, to bring the Son glory. God the Son, through the work on the cross, to bring the Father glory. So that we will become holy and blameless to magnify the glory of God. God's love is therefore both unconditional and conditional. Now that's, that's good Bible. It's unconditional and it's highly conditional in that he expects us. <laughs> he commands us. He demands us to become holy. You say, I don't like that. Again, rebellion. <laughs> I don't believe that. Rebellion again. He says, I, I, I've saved you and loved you to make you into this holy person that you might reflect my glory both now and forever. Jonathan Lehman, in the book I referenced last week, writes this, God's unconditional love is only part of the gospel. From God's standpoint, he loves us because he loves his, listen to this, this is so good. He loves us because he loves his beautiful son and wants his son's righteous beauty spread and proclaimed by transforming that righteous beauty in his son's bride, the church. He loves the son so much, he wants to make all these people the bride of Christ to reflect the son's majesty and glory. He continues, the idea of unconditional love suggests that he is content to love us exactly as he finds us. But that's not quite right. He loves us when he finds us, but he loves us by changing us into what we should be. But we should be. And this is the nature of covenant love. That God put his love on us first. And then he says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That God showed kindness and mercy to us first and then said love one another by being kind and merciful so he pours it out on us and then expects us to reflect it back to him and to one another he expects us to hear the law and the prophets not go uh but go ah I love the law I love the prophets I hunger and I thirst for righteousness So when the Israelites turned to their other gods and they bowed down to these false idols and they broke that covenant relationship with God, when they again and again continued with an unrepentant heart, it's not like they sinned and God said, you're sinning and they turned. That's our life, right? We sin, God says you're sinning and we repent and we turn. It was a perpetuated state of unrepented, diamond hard hearts after, after generations. He said, listen, you're not fulfilling my purpose. My purpose was to make you holy, to magnify my son. And if you're not going to be holy as I am holy to magnify, magnify my son, then I'm going to cut you off. And that's exactly what he did. 
when calamity struck, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians descended upon them, they cried out to God in utter despair. But it was too late. It was too late. The time of repentance and forgiveness had come and it had gone. Proverbs chapter 1, the first proverb. It says, they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat, listen to this, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. In other words, God is so gracious, even in his justice, he doesn't give them anything more than they rightly deserve. He exacts the exact amount of justice that they so desired. They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. What's the fruit of their ways? Look at verse 14, Zechariah 7 again. What was the fruit of it? God scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. The fruit of their ways was being scattered and experiencing utter desolation and destruction. That was the fruit. What? I mean... So before we say God is unfair and unjust, what did he do? What were they doing? They were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. That's what he said. Go worship. And he sent them out. Where did he send them? To the daughter of Babylon. He sent them to their gods. We can say that he was not only fair. He was imminently fair. And he gave them the very things their hearts desired most. And then he destroyed the city. Laid it desolate. So the compelling question for me this week is, why is God telling this to this group of people from Bethel? Why? I mean, this is a protracted dialogue of right worship. Why Sherezer and Regemmelech? Why these two guys? They come down from Bethel and they want to know about this fast on the 18th day of the fifth month. Can they stop it? Can they, keep, they need to keep going. And he stops and there's this long pause And he goes into this great teaching on true worship and the consequences of rebelling against the holy God. Why? Why? God takes this as a teaching moment for them. Sherezer and Regemmelech, very blessed. The people of Bethel, if they went back, very blessed. For Zechariah and the entire generation, very blessed. And for us to hear this teaching, blessed. Why? Why? They come from Bethel and they have a question about worship because they think that they got this covenant thing down. They think, here are the rules, here are the regulations, let's just do what he says, add a little bit here because the fast weren't in the law at all, by the way. We'll add our own, that'll be extra good, and we got the covenant thing down. He's a covenant God, we're in covenant relationship, he's our God, we're his people, we can do this. And so God comes to this teaching and says to Sherezer, Regemelech, to Zechariah, to their generation, and to our generation, you cannot do this. He's saying you can't even come close to fulfilling this covenant on your own. This call to right worship, kingdom-ordered love, 
obedience, submission, mercy, kindness, true justice, treating the poor correctly. Not possible for man on his own. I mean, when I was reading these to you, especially the first part, were you not, wasn't there a bit of, uh, 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 wait, thinking, I can't do these things. And that's, that's wonderful. You cannot on your own. Last point, ready? God's rescue mission. Zechariah's entire generation. They, they shouldn't have needed to be reminded. Right? I mean, they are living the immediate consequences of their father's rebellion. Of all generations, certainly this generation should have been able to hear this and say, Oh yes, you're right. We repent and turn now. But obviously, they needed to hear it too. They needed to hear that they could not fulfill this covenant on their own. I mean, these people who had been scattered and had been brought back, and then it engaged in this movement of God by the rebuilding of the temple and bringing the resources, they had taken their eyes again off the Creator. And they had missed the need for a Savior to come and do the work and then impart that power to them. And so they had engaged in this covenant now on their own strength and their own power. I mean, it makes sense, right? Look, look, the temples, people are coming home. The temple's being rebuilt. We're almost finished. We can start the sacrifices. We'll be back in again. Look at what we've done. Fasting and feasting and building a community. And so God graciously comes and he reveals to them this grand restoration. It's not so they can have a better life now. It's not so they can engage in a religious exercise. It again is all about him. And it's pointing to the one that they are to worship. And that would be the Messiah. The one that is to come. And so God calls all the prophets. And he calls all the priests to hear him one more time before it's too late. Too late for what? Too late for repentance. Too late for obedience. Too late for salvation. Too late for grace. Zechariah's generation was being given another chance not to, like their forefathers, hear the word and turn from the word. Not to have a stubborn shoulder or stopped ears or a diamond hard heart. They're getting another chance here. Not to experience the great wrath of God. Not to be scattered like their fathers were amongst the nations. And not to see their city again lay desolate. Be ruined. God was giving them a chance to hear. Now listen closely, saints. And live by faith. He was giving them a chance to hear his voice And submit to his laws and prophecies. To his power. Through faith in a savior. Not their own works. Not their own power. But the strength of one to come. And so God was calling them to repent. At that moment. Before it's too late. And he makes the same appeal to us today. In fact probably more telling and pertinent for us today in light of the fact that we haven't been scattered and we haven't, we're not staring at the temple being destroyed. We're comfortable. How much more so do we need to hear this today? He's telling us not to harden our hearts, but to hear 
and believe and put our faith in the Messiah as well. To render true justice and show mercy and care for the weak and not devise evil in our hearts because of our love for Christ. In other words, saints, he is calling you this morning to a life of holiness before it is too late for you. Before the days of grace are over and God comes again in all of his glory and power to judge the living and the dead and establish a kingdom that will have no end. Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. That's unconditional love. I need do nothing. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. Today, saints, is the day of salvation. This day, you got up, you brushed your teeth by God's grace. You showered, you got dressed, and you came here. What day is this? It's the day of salvation. Every day, before he comes again in glory... Is a day of salvation and grace and repentance every day. He's saying it's still not too late. The window of opportunity of putting your life through faith in the Savior is still there. It's still there. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this day of salvation, that day when God would send the Savior to do the work that only the Savior could do, the day that He would send the Savior who would not only live in perfect accord with the Father's laws and prophecies perfectly, but that would come and bring in his children and create a covenant community and impart to us his righteousness and then the power to live that way as well. Listen to the work the Savior would accomplish. This is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. God speaking to the prophet said, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. This person who would come and accomplish this great work is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The one who would come and gather his people where? To his church. He would gather a people of his own and create his church. He would come and he would do what? He would cleanse us of our sins and our idols through the washing of his blood. He would change our hearts. How pertinent for our passage. He would change our hearts from stone to flesh. He would put his spirit on us. And did you notice that? He would put his spirit on us to move us to follow his decrees and his laws. Why? To make us a people holy and blameless in his sight. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said this. Listen with all your ears. Unstop them if you, if you need to. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. 
You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Saints, how many come to church Sunday after Sunday and fulfill that prophecy? How many hear again and again, see again and again, and there's no turning, there's no repentance, there's no obedience, there's no submission, there's no glory to God? How many? How many this Sunday? How many last Sunday with the two million that flooded the church? Jesus says, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, they might see with their ears and hear with, uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. This is God's desire. His great desire is for us not to stay in this calloused, diamond hard, stopped ears, shoulders stubborn state. His desire is for us to turn, that he might heal us. And then he says something most extraordinary. He says, but blessed are your eyes because you see. And blessed are your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see talking to the disciples, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. What did they hear and what did they see? What did the disciples hear and see? Christ. They heard Christ. They saw Christ, the one that Ezekiel had prophesied to. He was there in their midst, in their presence. All the prophets said, they've longed to see me and I'm here. They longed for the Messiah who would usher in the day of salvation. And save their souls and equip them to be a holy people. When Jesus came to earth and lived that perfect life and died a sinner's death on the cross and then rose from the dead to bring honor and glory to his Father, he set off a chain reaction, a spiritual chain reaction. What do I mean? By overcoming the power of sin and death, Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, was the first to rise from the dead. And he moves this plan of redemption. He was the first, but not the last. And this chain reaction was one where God would, by his grace, unconditionally elect you and call you and put his love upon you and save you. And in your saved state, in his love, he will grow you. And you will love him and you will love one another and you will grow in this faith. You'll be sanctified and made holy. Enabling us to hear, believe, and obey him. Paul said again in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, listen to this, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Why? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're supposed to be one of many. One of many. Little Christ. Not in the deification sense, but in his image. Through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, God the Father unstops our ears, eases our shoulders, enables us to stop clenching our teeth, and he gives us a new heart to live lives marked by holiness and justice and mercy and kindness and a genuine concern for those in the margin and hearts that do not, do not devise wickedness but plan the good of others. Real transformation. 
expected, conditional. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I know many of you, I know not some, but if you are unsaved, that means if you do not know Christ, then today is the day of salvation. This day, this moment, this hour. By God's grace this morning, don't stop up your ears and turn your shoulder and make your heart diamond hard to his word proclaimed. Don't hate what Zechariah said. If you are unsaved, you are a sinner through and through, and you desperately need a savior. If you are unsaved, your life has been lived in complete and total rebellion from your mother's womb. If you are unsaved at this moment, you hate the creator of the universe. You've declared war against him. You've turned a stubborn shoulder to God all your life. You have refused to hear his word and his grace, the prophecies and the law. And you have made your heart diamond hard if you are unsaved. Your sins are piled up to the heavens. And unless you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you by his work on the cross, not your work in this life, then you too will be scattered and your end will be desolation and utter destruction. But if you hear the voice of the Lord this morning, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has caused you to be convicted of your sins. If you've heard the prophecy through Zechariah this morning, then you can through repentance and faith in the work of Jesus, you can, this day of salvation, have life instead of death. You can have God as your father rather than your enemy. You can, this morning, become a son or daughter of the king, being redeemed, forgiven, and empowered by the grace of God to live holy and blameless lives, if you do not know him. And please... Do not say, well, I've been in church all my life. I've been baptized. He's not talking to me. I don't know that. You know that, and God knows that. Do you know him? Do you really know him? You say, yes, I do. I know this Jesus. I've professed him with my mouth. I believe in my heart that God raised him. That I know him. He is my Lord, and he is my Savior, and I have that grace. That's good. I praise God for it. I have other questions for you. And for me, have you examined your heart lately, saints? How are your ears? How are your ears? Are they unstopped? How is your shoulder? Is it stubborn? How is your jaw? Are your teeth clenched? How malleable is your heart to hear, receive, and submit to the word of God? How malleable is your heart to hear the prophecy through Zechariah, and this is a hard warning, and not reject it outright, but to turn, repent, and believe it too? Are you in Christ submitting to God? 
Are you spending the time daily to know what it is you're supposed to submit to? (laughs) What he's actually said. Are you in Christ seeking to align your life in every part to his holy will? Every aspect of your life, is it your desire to submit to him? That's everything. Marriage, children, work, church, ministry, whole life to him as he's revealed in the word of God. Are you in Christ exercising the covenant relationship established by God with you to him and to one another? These are not hypothetical questions. They have real answers for each of us. Are you living according to the conditions of this relationship established and forged by the blood of Christ? This covenant relationship. Are you growing in your faith? Let's just be get real general. Are you growing in your faith? Are you becoming more just in your treatment of others? Are you showing more mercy and kindness to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you careful not to take advantage of those who are weaker than you, but rather care for them? Are you guarding your heart so you do not devise evil against those whom God has redeemed? At its most basic level, I'll ask you this. Are you growing in your love for God? Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Are you growing in your love for one another, His church? By God's grace, you too, saints, will see that this is the day of salvation. You too will repent for those areas that you are falling short. You too will say to God, I desire to be holy and blameless in your sight for the sole purpose of bringing you honor and glory now and forever. Forever, God, do a mighty work in me. Enough mediocrity, enough being lukewarm, enough, Lord. Do a mighty work in me this morning, your son, your daughter. So that just as Jesus brought glory and honor to his father through his perfect obedience in life and death, so too will we, those created in his image and saved in his blood, will bring honor and glory to our father with this life. Yeah, one shot. One shot to be holy and blameless in his sight and to come before him with all the work that he does through you. One shot. By God's grace, you will say as well, today is the day of salvation. I'm taking the grace and I'm going to live in its power that you will desire to be changed, that we as a church will desire to be changed. Let's pray. Father, we will start by seeking forgiveness for our sins, for we know all too well that our shoulders are stubborn, our ears are stopped. And our hearts are more than diamond hard. 
So we come before you individually and collectively as one people and ask, Lord, that you forgive us. For we are no different than Zechariah's generation. We're no different than the forefathers who rebelled against you in the desert. We know ourselves well, Lord. We know how much we do not want to submit. And so we ask that you forgive us. And we ask that instead of judging us as, as we rightly deserve, we ask, Lord, that you pour out your grace and your power to change us into the people that you desire us to be, the people that we ought to want to be, the people that you've created us to be, holy and blameless in your sight. Father, my heart soars when I contemplate your unconditional election on me that you did before the foundations of the world pour out your unconditional love on all those who know you. Our hearts soar over that. There was nothing we did or could do to have you put your love on us, but you did anyway. And for that, we praise you. And at the same time, Father, I pray that you give us the wisdom to understand that you have grand expectations in our lives that you expect this love to do a mighty work in us. That it will change us. And that we, we should not be content not being changed. But with every day that we have life, Lord, be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Father, you promised that the good work that you did in us, started in us, you will continue to the end. And we claim that. I ask, Father, for both the wisdom and desire to be a people that pursue it with all our might, that will run the race to win, knowing that in so doing, Christ, our Savior, will be glorified. Bless us in this manner, I pray, so that your name will be lifted on high by both the saved and the unsaved, for you alone are God and worthy of our worship and praise, now and forever. Christ's name. Amen. I heard the voice of Jesus say to me and rest Lay down a weary one lay down your head upon my breast I came to Jesus as I was so weary worn and sad Down there.
Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Might be. Our very being, our very existence might be for the praise of his glory. I pray, saints, that you have not adopted a false understanding of this love that God has poured out on us. I pray that you see clearly that God has a radical and wonderful expectation of you being holy and blameless as he's called and equipped you to be in order that he might be glorified. That we're not supposed to muddle through this. We're not supposed to surrender and succumb to sin and temptation. We're supposed to fight the fight and pursue the prize, which is Christ himself. If for a moment you think that I'm teaching this is easy, it is not. It is hard. It's hard. But what a wonderful battle. What a wonderful battle that God calls us in. Let's pray for strength right now. Father, we we know how hard this is. We are are flesh. We are sinners. We know, Lord, that we cannot do this great work that you've called us to, to be holy and blameless in your sight apart from the power of your son to make us holy and to work in and through us. And so we humbly come, Lord, before you this morning and we fall down before you in this day of salvation and cry out for the mercy and grace that you offer through Christ and the power to be these people. We ask, Lord, that you would do this great work in us, not for our own glory, but for yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.